Well, kia ora Koto. Um, this episode is with one of my favorite human beings in all of Christchurch, and that's Carl Davidson. And Carl is known to so many people. He's the great connector in the city and seems to be able to bring together a range of people from a range of backgrounds. But he and I catch up regularly, and I just thought this is a brilliant person to have a chat with in a bit more depth with regards to research in particular, the way he carries out social science research and tries to understand people, not just patterns and behavior, but people themselves and what underlies the patterns and behavior that they might express. So in this uh, quarter, we go from all things from research methods all the way through to social policy change and the importance of having that focus on well-being as well and pro-social behavioral change. Um, definitely think there might be scope for a follow-up with him. Uh, really enjoyed chatting with him and hopefully you enjoy it too. This is the first time that I have done uh, a podcast in a cafe setting and it seems like the audio is okay but apologies if it is a little bit scratchy in places as they're grinding coffee in the backgrounds but hopefully you still enjoy it. Kaki te anō. So kia ora tato. welcome back and as you know I am Akan Veer and I'm here with the inimitable Carl Davidson who is the founder and chief social scientist at Research First which I would say is definitely Ōtatahi Christchurch's leading market research firm if not the country's leading market research firm. Um, Carl's both a practitioner, academic and author with a particular insight in human behaviour, consumption, behavioural change and, and a real strong bent to understanding people as people, not just numbers, which I think is really powerful in, in the work that he does. He's authored nine books. Are we up to ten? or is Ten, it, I think. Ten books now. <laughs> so we need to update your profile online. But I thought there was ten. Ten books um, on research practice in New Zealand uh, and has held various prestigious positions both within the city and, and in central government. And what I think is particularly important about the role that Carl does, he's been able to use his, his knowledge, his insight to uh, approach really difficult issues in um, society. And so he's acted as the Chief Commissioner for the Families Commission as well as sitting on various uh, expert panels when it comes to supporting Oranga Tamariki and vulnerable children and things like that. So it's my distinct pleasure to welcome Carl to have a discussion about all things market research. We are at, what is this, Espresso on 245? Two, 245. 245. Yeah. Fantastic. What was it? Well, this is not a paid promotion as well. So this is why we've got a little bit of noise in the background, but hopefully you can still hear us fine. But Carl, welcome. Sure. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Carl, um, I always like to start these discussions with a little bit of whakafanongathanga, get to know each other. So I wonder if you can tell us what kind of uh, your background is and what drew you to this area of market research in particular. So tell me about yourself a little sure. bit more. Thanks, Akin. So um, I'm, I'm Tao Iwi. I was born in the UK, but I like to say I was, I was born in the UK and seasoned in New Zealand. We moved here with my parents when I was uh, at primary school. So I went to high school and university here. Um, spent 10 years in Auckland teaching at a university and also running a, running my own company. I, I'm a social scientist first, right? One of the great things we've talked about before is how marketing and market research is all really about social science, mm -hmm. applied psychology. So my, my degree's in um, psychology and sociology. But um, I guess what happened for me was uh, I was teaching at a university at, at a period of profound change in New Zealand, where universities essentially entered the, the modern world and became semesterized and became commercialized mm. and people had to pay fees. So mm. it became a much more of a customer rather than a, a student model. Um, and so I, I, I entered the university thinking it would be a sinecure. You know, I thought I'd be one of those 60-year-old academics with leather, you know, leather, leather elbow pads and, and a smoking a pipe. Don't, don't destroy my dream. That's still <laughs> what I'm hoping for. Um, but but I, 
I was in Auckland in the 90s when, you know, it really felt like the streets were paved for gold. Mm. You know, I was surrounded by entrepreneurs and, uh, and, and people just getting out, either trying to change the world or trying to make a fortune. And um, I'd started doing some teaching in an MBA program in Auckland. And that really exposed me to what I could do with my, my social science background. And that was really the, the, the pivot where I started moving away from social science research towards market research, but with mm. a social science perspective. For sure. And, and people have asked me what it's like, uh, myself as a consumer behaviorist, what, what does your job entail? And I said, I'm effectively a, a professional people watcher. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. I, and, yeah. and, and yeah. I don't know if I've me- ever met anyone who doesn't like just watching yeah. people, making stories about them. But this is another level with, yeah. with the work you do as well. Totally. Just, well, two thoughts on that, right? I mean, we're all in the business, well, I'm in the business of you know, finding out what people think, feel, and do. Yeah. That's what I love. But one of the things that I, I, I talk about when I teach how to do this stuff, I'm sure you do as well, is so much of what we do is a refinement of everyday ways of making sense of the world, right? We sure. watch people, we listen to people, we ask them what they're doing, we look at the things they make. We just do that in a, in a systematic way. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if this is where Research First, maybe I'm wrong and I don't know the industry as well as you do, but where it differentiates itself from many other research firms and other policy influences and the like is that New Zealand and I think much of the Commonwealth has a real sort of fetish for economic metric models and where you bring the human element in and the social science element in it's not saying econometric models are not important but it is important in my mind as well to understand the people that underpin totally, those. Totally. Well, well and I wonder if there's another way to think about that you know uh, economics began life as a subset of psychology and I, I, I like to make the argument that post Kahneman and prospect theory it's kind mm. of moving back mm. into a subset of psychology and if you think about social science as a broad church then economics can be a powerful part of that. Like I've got nothing against economics. I just don't think economics is the entire answer. Mm-hmm. So we, as a research company, and, and personally in my life, you know, I often switch between an anthropological perspective and a psychological perspective and you know, a, a personal psychological perspective and a social psychological perspective and a sociological perspective and then a political science view. Mm-hmm. And just swapping between those levels. That C. Wright Mills, who's a famous sociologist, talked about uh, having a sociological imagination. Mm. You know, when you look at something, trying to work out why it's like that and how it could be different, and sure. why isn't it different? Yeah, and and very much fits into, especially when we start talking about the consumption sort of practices. A, a lot of the old sociologists, things like you know, the presentation of self in Absolutely. everyday life. You know, yeah. I mean, this yeah. this idea is we are all human and we are created effectively Absolutely. the same way, but we present ourselves in multiple ways, and that influence on our behavior, that influence on our actions and everything else like that does come through. Totally. And that link to Goffman I think is great because, you know, um, I think lots of people are rediscovering some of those greats, Mm. often through an evolutionary psychological lens or an evolutionary consumer behavior lens, thinking about those really deep-seated needs that we have as people and the way we can use consumption of products and services and brands Mm. to realize those. Oh, very cool. Um, So as the founder as the what is it, chief social scientist <laughs> research first <laughs> are there some key principles you bring into every project you do are there some things that you guide I mean I, I can imagine there will be companies coming to you and say I want to sell more yes help me understand how yeah. and uh, is there a way that you can guide someone who has very little knowledge of market yeah. research? Yeah. so totally so let's start from the beginning I mean so the, there are certainly things we don't do Mm. So, you know, the part of what the social science perspective does is it, you know, it inevitably gives you an, an ethical perspective on some things. Mm. And, and look, I'm not, 
I'm not pretending for a moment that you know that's as broad as I would like, but there are certainly things we, we don't do, and there are jobs we customers we don't want to work with, and there are jobs we don't want to do. Mm. Um, but within that, you know, um, even though I'm a social scientist, I'm also a huge fan of capitalism. You know, I think capitalism has demonstrated that it's a really efficient way to do a lot of things, and we can argue about how much social control one wants to wrap around capitalism. So I'm a social democrat, but a capitalist, right? Um, so absolutely, thinking about how that can operate more efficiently and effectively. It's something I'm really excited about. I really like economic growth. I like prosperity. Mm. Um, but for me, it all comes back to the person in mm. that position, right? So questions of power and authority, mm. um, agency, if you're thinking about consumer behavior, but also always thinking about what is it, what's, you know, the jobs to be done perspective, sure. you know, Clayton Christensen's idea. When you when somebody's buying something or using something or choosing something, what job is it doing for them? Yeah, what yeah. deep-seated need is it fulfilling? You know, what job does it do in their life? And if you think about that jobs to be done perspective, it really opens up a beautiful perspective on the competitor set. Because actually the competitor might not just be brands in that narrow vertical, they could actually be radically different things. Sure. Like, you know, one of the competitors could be to do nothing. We just choose to do nothing. Sure. We, you know, we buy nothing. You know, um, so I really like that perspective. So yes, we always bring psychological or social science models to what we do because ultimately we're always talking about people. Even if you think about something as narrow as advertising, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but mm. you know, advertising as just one of the tools that marketers have. You know, advertising is about persuasion. Sure. And persuasion is a psychological phenomenon. Yeah. Right. So thinking about, you know, wh who wants to be persuaded and why, mm -hmm. and how do we persuade them, I think is really interesting. And when, when is it unethical to use persuasion? Sure. And the, the problem with this, and the difficulty of this, and this is why I think market research is far more complicated than may, most people take give credit for, is that you can go one layer down and say, well, price. Yes. Uh, drop the price, and people will buy more. Yeah. You know, uh, and say, so, well, why? Uh, mm -hmm. and so, okay, well, if you drop the price, it's because someone feels there's greater value. Okay, why? And then going yes, down there. Like and this all kind of comes down to that individual's, that person's core values. Yeah. And uncovering those core values yeah. is a difficult thing to do. And it really takes insight to achieve that. Um, there are some values, I think, that are reasonably universal. But when it comes to actual consumption, there will be people who will be purchasing this thing because it makes them feel cool. Other people totally. making it because it sends a message. Other people because it's cheap. And they're all manifest in the same way which is purchasing this product totally agree and and even in the kind of the strategy and the policy work we do we're really big on what's the problem behind the problem which yeah. is that cascade you've just yeah. worked through um, and and the other thing you know and you know we've both got a huge interest in, in diversity and inclusion mm. and the, you know one of the huge problems we have as social scientists is this growing recognition that so much of what we take for granted as social scientists is based on these weird studies mm. you know studies drawn from white, educated, industrialized, rich demographic usually, samples. Usually student samples. Really student <laughs> samples. So, you know, actually thinking, particularly as the world gets, you know, um, more, you know, as we get mm. more diverse and the markets get more global, thinking about do those assumptions hold? Yeah. And what would different assumptions look like? And what are other competing means of understanding consumers, but also of marketing to them? Yeah. And um, without getting too technical for a lay audience, you know, there, there are various um, statistical measures that are put into models, and one of them is an R squared model, which shows the power of an effect or the, the, the relationship between two constructs. And within social sciences, 
any around anywhere around 30% is absolutely flipping amazing. Absolutely. 30% yeah. of this outcome is driven by this input. Um, while you go to chemistry, if it's anything less than 95%, don't even touch that yeah. thing. Yeah. That is yeah. that is junk, you know. Um, so that means 70% of our decisions are still error. 70% of our decisions are still weird. There was a great paper in psychology. Um, uh, I can't. Remember, I think it was psychological bulletin. It's about seven eight years ago that went through. Uh, as psychology was going through this raft of potential data f fixing and things like that. Say if you ever see an R-squared value of more than 0.5, as in 50% is driven by this, then it's fake data. Absolutely. There is no yeah, way we, that is we, true. We don't have that level we don't of certainty. That, no, exactly. Well, and you raise a really good point, which is that um, there's been an awful lot of things that have changed since I've been doing this. I've been doing this for 30 years. Mm. And people often point to technology and big data. Like, mm. you know, how excited are you about sure. machine learning, AI and data? And those are incredible tools and really useful. But they're all constrained by essentially what we would call epistemological problems. There are actually there are philosophical limits to what we can and can't know. Sure. And what, you know, particularly the kind of behavioral turn in psychology has reinforced is how little any of us can know about our motivations. Yeah. And if you think about, um, and so this matters in terms of predicting how's a product going to do, how's a service going to do, you know, asking people if they're going to use it or if they would change yeah. is a really, really inaccurate, uh, ineffective way to do sure. that stuff. And there are some really cool techniques we can talk about in a minute that have replaced them. But I think that understanding of our own limits, of uh, our limits to be able to interpret our own behaviour and motivations, I think that's what's changed research more than anything else. Yeah. Because what that's done for certainly the, the sophisticated practitioners in the market, mm. there are lots of good companies around the world, as it just makes us incredibly humble. Sure, sure, sure. And, and so that's probably a great segue onto the next set of questions, which is, are there specific techniques or uh, ways of doing research that you're particularly uh, a fan of? Now, uh, let, me, let me give you right. a preface yeah. to this, simply because much of social science research and psychological research is usually done by self-report. Yes. Very little is done by observation, although mm -hmm. that is growing, yeah. because observation is difficult to do and expensive, and, yeah. and you don't understand usually why. So we ask people, what do you feel about brand X, and sure. give them a thing. Um, out of the Harvard School, uh, uh, IATs came about, which tried to uncover, you know, subconscious, non-conscious actions, beliefs, that sort of thing, and was hit by a bunch of criticism because they're like, well, this is so flawed because X, Y, Z, and their their argument was like, no one talks about how flawed self-reports are, but that's become the foundation Absolutely. of it. So that's so that's really interesting. So um, <clears throat> let's start with self-reports. Mm. So yeah, self-reports are profoundly flawed as a predictive tool, mm. but actually they're still incredibly valuable as a way of me understanding your narrative. Sure. Right? So all of us, as consumers, citizens, create a narrative about who we are, mm. who we want to be, right? And those self-reports give us a really good insight into how you see yourself as an actor. Um, they're not necessarily true, mm. but they are rich, right? And so uh, I'll give you an example. In, in qualitative research, um, you know, we do focus groups and we do uh, in-depth interviews, IDIs. But the emerging technique now is rather than talking to you about how you're going to respond to a new product or service, I talk to your best friends and your wife mm -hmm. and the other people that have seen you react to this. Sure. Because then I don't get you know, you thinking about what you would do at your best, but actually I get what is typical. Yeah. So that I really like this kind of approach. And in research as well, particularly in policy, and we'll get to mm. how social science can change the world in a minute, there's a thing called an unfocused group that I really like. Okay. So focus groups, as you know well, um, get their name because the focus is the group of people have something in common. Yeah. 
uh, focus uh, on a particular yeah, task. And they or focus problem. on a task. Yeah. So there are two levels of focus. An unfocused group is when you bring your critics together. Cool. The people that hate the product, the people that hate the service, yeah. and you just let them rant. Yeah. And it's really, it's a really, really cool counterpoint. But I actually think um, if we back up, um, uh, there's a huge debate, as you know, about how scientific capital is, is social mm. science. And I totally get all of that. I've spent years reading and writing about it. But I love the idea of the experimental logic as providing critical tests of our ideas. Mm. I'm a huge fan of Popper, nice link to Canterbury sure. and Simon Canterbury. Um, that notion of teaching people, and this is the critical thinking work we do, teaching everybody in marketing and research always to be asking, what would it take to prove this idea yeah, wrong, yeah. right? So we, so we just don't fall for our own bullshit. Yeah. You know, like, what's the critical test of this idea? Setting up uh, devil's advocates in our team so that we don't get carried away with groupthink, but always testing. Think, you know, that's the way that we can actually prove that something does or doesn't work. So give, give me some background to this whole uh, critical thinking fight club that you set up. Mm. I see that you run workshops with the Marketing Association on critical thinking. I've got the little um, that little cards <laughs> at home. Here are the rules yeah, of yeah. critical thinking well, and that, things like that. So that, that, so, that started my policy life rather than yeah. my mark. So the, in the, when, we, when I worked at the Families Commission, that was a great team when we worked there. What we were discovering was it was really hard to change the nature of the public debate because there was so much bad research, particularly in sure. mainstream media. Yeah. So we, we ran a series of seminars um, to help journalists understand what good research looks like. Cool. And, and, and by that I mean give them the tools to interrogate you know, what, what is good and bad research because you know, there's just so much terrible research in the world because it's so easy to do. And then when we moved into uh, research first back in 2006, I realized I had exactly the same problem with my clients. Like, it's not enough. So what would t often happen is a client would come to me with a question, often with a method, mm. and then just ask me to supply it. Could you? Yeah. And we're not in that business, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we're, to be useful to you, your inside partner needs to be a strategy thinking partner. Mm. So we needed to get upstream. Getting them to think through the problem is the right problem, is there a problem behind the problem was easy. But getting them to think about their own assumptions yeah, is extraordinarily yeah. difficult. And that took us into what's called critical thinking, but really it's about thinking about thinking. And that's turned into a really popular day course that we do at the Marketing Association. Mm. We now run for you guys as well at UC. We offer it on the side, 60-minute version of full thing. And it's just teaching you some thinking tools mm. that, again, someone you know, with your background picks up implicitly as you go but it explicitly gives people tools and hence the wallet card. So you can actually refer to it to make sure you're not falling for your own bullshit. But you, you check your own biases and things like Absolutely. that. Like, I mean, I, I love, they're just really simple, some of the things. And maybe um, we can uh, sit down and talk about that at length, just the whole process there. But things like, maybe you're not right. Maybe, <laughs> yes. maybe Who'd have thought that maybe you are not actually right? That's right. And the other person yeah. has a really good point. But, and my wife uses this phrase a, a, a lot, we need to be curious, not furious, Absolutely. when we start talking to people. You know, when yeah. we're starting to get into a deep debate, yeah. be curious, not furious. But it's so difficult, and I think ego gets in the way so much that, shit, you're right. Yeah. Maybe I am wrong about this and this person is right, but that's the only way we can advance. That's the only way we can, we can have a proper debate about this. Well, we should talk about this because I think we could spend the whole time talking about this, but we, what we do with organisations is we, we counsel people how to disagree without being disagreeable. Yeah, so yeah. Curious, not furious, yeah. I love it. But, you know, all this comes back to essentially wisdom that's thousands of years old. Sure. In the psychological language, it's about, you know, what, what we all need to do is create the biggest gap we can between a stimulus and a response. Sure. You know, the, the idea that, you know, the moment you experience an emotion, 
doesn't mean you have to express it. That expression mm. is your choice. And the older you get and the wiser you get, the more you realize you can build a gap between mm -hmm. those two things. Mm -hmm. Because all of us are trapped inside ideas we already have. Yeah. And that's the notion that's about the maybe you're the one that's wrong. Yeah, but I wonder if this is because, and this is a, maybe a flippant analysis of human existence, but you know, 80s, 90s, the, the brands we had very much were linked to our identity. Yes. You know, yeah. the car you drove, the clothes yeah. you wear, whatever else it might be, the house you had, the suburb you lived in. And those are still important to many, many people but our ideology and our beliefs are far more linked to our identity now. And so when someone starts attacking your beliefs or your things, it is an attack on you as a person, and so people get defensive very quickly. But again, through a psychological lens, nothing happens. No. Like if you, you know, if you, it, so again, one of the things we talk about uh, in critical thinking and unconscious bias training is your irritation is your friend. Yeah. If you feel yourself getting irritated, that's telling you something really important, and it's probably not telling you what you think. Yeah. Like it's telling you that you're either you're not communicating your idea as clearly as you thought, or that actually somebody, that the reason you feel threatened is because your idea isn't as strong yeah. as you think it is, right? You're scared of letting go of it. But nothing happens. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those classic, it's okay if you're offended. Yeah. It's, it's okay if you're upset. Yeah. But it's not okay if that compromises your behavior oh, or totally. hurts others and things like that. Totally. And this is where it needs to be, can we have those healthy debates between people without actually, like you say, you know, compromising yeah. I totally agree. And, and, totally. And just because you're offended doesn't mean that I've been offensive. Yeah, I mean, right. I could have been offensive, but just because you feel offended doesn't mean prima facie that I've been offended. That's right. Yeah. And this is where I, I mean, I get into debates and difficulties. I mean, most people know I have a strong and passionate background in equity yes. and I'm a strong opponent of safe places. Yes. This idea that there, there is a place where anything goes yeah. and, and I, I don't feel that's realistic. I think everyone should feel safe. But the idea that you can be without consequence is, is not reality, and it becomes difficult. So maybe that segues nicely onto some of your policy work. Yes, uh, yeah. and, and maybe start with what drew you to that. I mean, there's, as, as a yeah. self-professed lover of capitalism, it yeah. <laughs> seems, well, seems easier to stay in that space. But when you start getting into social issues and stuff that really is yeah. difficult, I mean, I guess, well, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, this is a glass of wine conversation, but I see capitalism as, a, as an engine that creates prosperity. Hmm. But you know how it does that uh, is up to us to decide as a society. Hmm. Like, we already have rules, right? You know, you you can't sell handguns to young kids. Hmm. You know, we have plenty of rules, um, and and I think those settings are really really important. Yeah. And I think one of the the well certainly as a social scientist, and you know, um, even though I've been on the chamber of com, uh, you know, the uh, chamber of commerce and um, you know, own a company, my politics, certainly my social politics, lean centre-left. Mm -hmm. And I, I really worry about equity. I, sure. worry, I really worry about social cohesion. And you know, you can make a narrow economic argument mm. that without, without social cohesion, without equity, you actually, that can have an impact on how prosperous we can all be. This is, you know, the, the, you know, the spirit level argument. Yeah. But actually, I just have a fundamental commitment to it. And part of that are the values I was, I was growing up in. You know, I'm, it's interesting, um, I was watching a documentary um, where Stephen Fry was accused of being a social justice warrior. Okay. And his response was, well, I'm certainly not for injustice. Yeah. <laughs> how, is, how is this a bad thing? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what I felt like. You know, like so I, I, injustice worries me. Yeah. And, and so that, you know, if you think about the great social scientists, they all said the point of social science isn't just to understand the world, it's to help change it. Sure. 
And that's kind of the policy work and the behaviour change work we do. That's really How cool. do you start making a pro-social change yeah. using all the information and knowledge and tools we've got, right? I love that stuff. Yeah. The, I started out, uh, and what took me to the Families Commission was thinking about family violence. Yeah. And and um, family violence is such a complex issue. Like sure. It's really easy. Um, uh, Minkin, the journalist, said, uh, there's a complex, there's a simple solution to every complex problem, and it's always wrong. Yeah. And if you think about family violence or poverty, it's easy to leap to there's a really simple solution to these things. Sure. But there is. There's really not. And the, these are these are wicked entangled problems. Yep. And it's easy to lose heart working on them. Mm. But the the perspective that the Families Commission had, which I always liked, was, you know, we need to have a, a big aspirational goal. Think about. Uh, Waka Kotahi's uh, road to zero. You know, one imagines that everybody knows that's not going to happen. Sure. But by aiming at zero, we can make a huge reduction in the road. Time, sure. You know, through behaviour and change. Yeah. And and, and similar happened with Smoke Free 2025. Absolutely. We are what three years away from being a smoke-free country, and and even five years ago, whenever they announced it, I'm like, no chance. No chance. <laughs> no chance. No chance. But it's a great tool. But it's to, a great tool to, to move. And, the, and we, you just need to move the dial. Right. And almost set the expectation yeah. that we're not going to compromise on this. We want to get this. Now, one of the, and this is the, this is the saddening fact of human behavior, in that I think uh, we can see a, a massive reduction in tobacco use as a population. It is not reduced as much within some of our Mardi and Pacific communities Absolutely. and definitely not our Asian community. Mm-hmm. What we have seen is a massive rise in uh, e-vaping, yeah. uh, in uh, e-cigarettes and yeah. vaping. Yeah. And it's almost like... Yes, it's not tobacco, but it's not good. Well, again, anthropologically, one of the interesting things, if you look at uh, the history of the world, really, is every society at every point in time has found a way to get whacked out of its mind on drugs or alcohol. And so the idea, for instance, that you could create a community where there are no drugs, a war on drugs, or a a community where there's no alcohol prohibition, is just incredibly poorly informed Mm. from a kind of social science and historical perspective. Well, one of the one of the findings we found when when 2025 was announced, the Smoke Free 2025, we actually saw some people, not a significant number, yeah. but some people who said, "I'm going to start smoking," not because they are smokers and they want yeah. to smoke, they just don't like being told what to do. Well, look, we, we, we are living at the moment right through exactly the same phenomenon. You know, like when you think about the people who are vaccine hesitant. Um, you know, it seems to me that there is a long tail of people, some of whom are ardently anti-vax, and mm-hmm. some people just don't want to be told what to do. Correct. Just are sick of, you know, yeah. actually that's about compulsion. Yeah. And, you know, and that's kind of cool too, right? It, you know, the people that resist compulsion, those rebels are often the ones that change the world for the better. And, and it makes our lives interesting as, <laughs> as people watchers as well. Not necessarily easy as yeah. a wider society, but definitely fascinating. And I think this is why we can't reduce things to, this is the logical, healthy Absolutely. thing to do, therefore yeah. people will well, do it. Again, Social science perspective, historical view, you know, mm. the challenge every society's had is how do you have loose, tight settings, right? yeah. where the setting is sufficient that you can let geniuses emerge, yep. but not so loose that you can you know, actually have... You, people, you yeah. lose track and but, anarchy. But, <laughs> but if, you, if you try and make people conform too much, you lose mm. that ability to get that transformational rebellion. Of course. Right, so you need to be a little bit loose. I like that idea of uh, transformational rebellion. Yeah. 
Um, we talked about this a little bit in the past with regards to political polling and things like that. If there was one thing you wish everyone in New Zealand or the world yeah. knew about market research, is there something that goes, I just wish people got this because then life would be easier? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing is um, it's a snapshot. Yeah. And, you know, the first thing is it's a snapshot. And even with the fastest methods in the world, it's a look in the review. Mode, sure. Right? So you've got it. That's, that's the first thing to know. Um, secondly, um, Measures are like models that are always approximations. Yeah. And we feel like they're measuring something real, but they very rarely measure the thing you think they're measuring. Right? Yeah. It's funny, a friend of mine, I was at a conference on well-being, uh, and a friend of mine did his PhD in Denmark. Okay, I hope there's nobody from Denmark listening. And you know, we were showing the international comparisons of happiness mm. on the kind of international impact frameworks, the OECD happiness. And Denmark's always always in the top one or two. And, and he was saying, the only people that can believe the Danish are the happiest people in the world are people who have never lived in Denmark. <laughs> you know, like, like it may well be that, that they hit all those metrics. Yeah. But, you know, that isn't expressed in a, in an ebullient, friendly, welcoming society. Sure. Um, so there's that. The other thing is, um, there's always, there are always errors in research. Yeah. And we know about the margin of error, because everyone reports it wrong, yeah. as it turns out. But... Um, and the margin of error is a measure of a sampling error. Mm. So how mm. you select the people introduces some error into how accurate the results can be. But there are errors for which we have no well-known measures, non-sampling errors. Mm. How the bloody survey was designed, yep. the time, you know, all this yeah. stuff, the time it was taken, mm -hmm. all of that stuff. And so always being thinking about non-sampling errors. Mm. And so the thing that we're taught and academics are taught is it's always better to look at trends, polls of polls. Sure systematic analyses than single results sure because if you see a study you know as you talked about before if you see a study that is radically different to what we know either it's a genius breakthrough yeah. or it's wrong what's wrong and you know what i've been on most of the time <laughs> <laughs> but i mean you cannot have systematic studies unless you do the points in time as well and so it is kind of an and and it's not an either or and so we need both sides i mean the the happiness one is a really good uh, example, I think, just because I've used this in the past with my well-being talks and the like, and so New Zealand is often ranked in the top one or two or three happiness yes. nations on earth, yeah. and we have one of the highest suicides right. in the world. Uh, something's wrong. Yeah. Well, well, something's yeah. either wrong with our yeah. measures or something's. Well, no, you're, you're yeah. highlighting a point, a good yeah. point too, which is uh, nobody's anything all the time. Yeah, exactly. Right? And and aggregate measures hide much more than they, they, they tell mm -hmm. you. And you're absolutely right. You know, if you if you think about well-being measures, it may well be that on aggregate, New Zealand's doing really well. Yeah. But there are certainly subsets in New Zealand that are doing terribly. Yeah. In terms of prosperity, in terms of well-being, whatever you want to whatever you want to choose, right? So don't get hung up on averages. Yeah. It could also be that we have one of the most effective suicide reporting states in the world. I know in my absolutely. culture back in India, people say they died of a heart attack because right. it, the stigma of suicide is so so high yep. they'd say he must have died in his sleep or she must have well yeah. again we saw that in the pandemic yeah when the, in the first lockdown we saw, were looking at those statistics from germany and italy and mm. they, you know you know I, I don't remember the numbers but one was in the hundreds and one was in the tens of thousands yeah one country is measuring any death that had COVID comorbidity yeah. one was only measuring death directly attributed to COVID. That, that the measures look like they're the same thing they were radically different but it's a it's a definitional issue and unless you know the mechanism and the methodology underpinning it and you're critical enough to analyze that we can't do the, the apples and apples um, yeah. comparisons one of the things that falls out of a lot of the work we do the critical thinking work and the policy work is mm. um, people often say well how can we even know anything yeah and and you know actually um, 
what we like to say is almost everything we know is conditional in the extent mm. of it's an experiment that we're continuing to monitor. And that uh, uncertainty is uncomfortable, but certainty mm. is ridiculous yeah, yeah, yeah. for most of the things that we worry about most of the time. And in market research, if we go back to market research, actually, you know, sensible is good enough. Yeah. You know, like, you know, should we enter this market? What should we do with our pricing strategy? What are our competitors doing? Is this a good way to, to do what we need to do? Actually, sensible is good enough. Yeah. Um, but if you're making a policy initiative, sure. you know, no child left behind, yeah. you know, you need much, you have a much higher standard of data. Let's be rigorous, yeah. yeah. One of my um, favorite stories out of the, well, it's a terrible story, but it's a favorite story out of the pandemic with regards to methods and measurement. I believe there was a Central African coalition that came together at, early in the pandemic and they were talking about one particular country, I think it was Malawi, and they said, we just want to congratulate Malawi on not having a single case of COVID when the rest of us are, <clears throat> are struggling with this. And they said, please tell us, how have you managed to avoid this? It says, excellent question, we have no tests. <laughs> so so we, we, we right, cannot yeah. test for yeah. COVID, therefore we have no COVID. We, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. that's a, There is no depression in New Zealand. Right? Correct, yeah. because we have not measured it. Yeah. Well, we do not have an effective measure or our definition of this is very different. Yeah. So I mean, we, we, yeah. I mean, the, the, if we go back to the market research, you know, the thing that we tell people to come and work with us. So, some people want to build a career in insights. Yeah. You know, some people just are just insatiably curious, and if you're insatiably curious, there's no better place to be than being insights. Sure. Right. One of the things I love most about my job is the constant novelty. Yeah. The questions we're dealing with, underpinning all of that's human behaviour and influence, yeah. but how that expressed the changes all the time. But the thing that we say, and I know we've talked about this in terms of your own students, is if you want a career in marketing, working in insights for two or three years is the best way to accelerate that career. Because we will expose you to markets and techniques yeah. and verticals in a way that nothing else will. Yeah. So rather than going and getting that apprenticeship at Coca-Cola or somewhere else, just come and work in insights. Come work in insights and, uh, and like I've expressed as well, if you don't stay in insights, you don't stay in research, there is not going to be a time in your career where well, you're not, not going to yeah. need it at some point totally. to help make decisions. So if you don't look like a numpty reading the, the data, <laughs> that's going to be a bonus for you because yeah. there are a lot of people, I've met a lot of people in very senior positions who look at things and said, if this was a graph, this would help, but I, I, I otherwise have no idea what this means. Yeah, yeah. That's and that's, that's different. Well, and, and look, you know, we've bounced around all over the place, but yeah. you, um, you're highlighting a really good point, which is when you talked about methods, the reality still is that the decision makers, particularly around boards, are of a generation which is much, much more familiar with quantitative research. Sure based on surveys, yeah. reported as graphs mm -hmm. and, and percentages than they are with qualitative mm -hmm. information. Mm -hmm. uh, and qualitative information you know, has really solid epistemological philosophical foundations. They're just different to quantitative yeah, ones, yeah, yeah. right? And it's still really powerful and insightful. Yeah. But getting people who are familiar with it and prepared to make decisions on the basis of it is much harder. Yeah. Um, so what I do in the MBA teaching I do for you guys is we help those people who are going to be future managers understand how to read research yeah. and find out what it really means. You don't have to do it. Then you're probably never going to do any. And, and uh, part of me wants to do a whole other podcast with you looking at both social desirability bias when you're filling yes, in a survey, absolutely. but also social desirability when you're receiving the results and going, this doesn't fit the narrative that I as a business owner want, therefore I'm not going to release this data. Or this is going to hurt me more than it helps me, therefore we're going to keep this secret. And I, I kind of maybe flippantly describe you to my friends as the person that knows most about the city but can't tell anyone because it's commercially sensitive <laughs> or it'll make yeah. people look bad yeah. <laughs> but, 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 yes but think about that for a minute right like you know um, if we're all if we if we sign up for you know 
the mission of making this the greatest city to live, or we want our kids and our grandkids to come back here and thrive here, mm. then actually we're all in the same thing together. Sure. So then let's start thinking about what are the barriers to being truthful? You know, um, you know um, how do we go about thinking about how we can use information to move forward? It's exactly the same in every organization. We see exactly what you say, where people get poor customer experience responses or, or projections for a new product they don't like, they spin it, they try and do all sorts of things about their very narrow self-interest. Sure. Comes back to a nice psychological perspective. Yeah. At how do you create psychological safety for those people? Yeah. To be really honest. I, I think we we when we get bad results, we become furious rather than curious. You know, that's as simple as that. Um, Except yeah. again, all the research we do yep. and all the research we read says when it comes to leaders, people are much more interested in having people who are happy to admit mistakes. Sure. And 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 not have all the answers. And I, I have to call you out on this. I don't know if this is your fault or this is just what the universe does. Whenever I go and come to one of your pulse breakfasts, which are amazing time to, to learn about what's going on, somehow I always sit next to either the mayor or the deputy mayor, and then you're bringing up the graph on what the city thinks about leadership, and I'm sitting there next to this person, awkwardly going, oh, that's that's me, isn't it? And I'm yeah. like, yeah, it's all right, mate. It's, it's We don't all hate you right now. Yeah, but, but again, right, this is a really nice research question because it makes no sense to interpret that yeah. in isolation. Exactly. Right? Like, you know, you know, think about all the compromises anybody leading any large organization sure. has to make. You know? yeah. um, the thing that we talk about all the time is if you think about a hierarchy, the only decisions that make it to the top of that hierarchy are the really, really difficult ones. Anything easier gets solved on the way through. Yeah, right? exactly. So, you, you know, if, you, if you've got a job that pays you a lot of money, you know, you're the person that has to deal with complex problems sure. where there will always be winners and losers. Yeah. So it's going to be really, really hard for you to have incredibly positive ratings all the time. Mm -hmm. But some of that stuff in that, that pulse research, which is in the public domain, I think is really useful. The idea that, again, we're talking in Christchurch, people in Christchurch don't know what the city, the vision for the city is. Sure. You know, we've come out of this period of rebuilding, you know, we can all agree that that's done, mm. we've done that for a decade. We're now this amazing city posed for growth, and we're going to leap into, you know, the, 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 the next decade, 20, 30 years, and be something incredible. What is that? Yeah. You know, what is that? And, and you know, who's leading us there? Where are our champions? How is that communicated? How is that Absolutely. equal parts reflective yeah. of who we are versus aspirational to who we want to be? Absolutely. All that sort of stuff. And it, yeah, it goes back to brand. We've had this conversation yeah. too. What's brand Christchurch in 2022? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a fascinating question. And look, there are some great people working on that. Mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, we, we both know Christchurch New Zealand and what they've been doing. You know, really thinking hard about place marketing and, mm. and narratives. Um, but the task of how do you imbue that so that the people that are coming through primary school, high school, and secondary yeah, yeah. school pick that That's up. That's part of who they are and their identity Absolutely. and their sense of pride for the place. Yeah. So just to wrap things up, I used to ask people at the end of a conversation with them, you know, what's breaking your heart at the moment, thinking that this is something that maybe I can I can yeah. feed into to support and, mm. and build. And got pretty depressing, and I got sick of yeah, listening no, to yeah, all the problems. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to ask, is there something in particular, whether it's in your professional life, whether it's in society, that, that you're really hopeful for, that gives you real hope for the future. Yeah, and look, this is I'm sure this is the same for you given what you do, but um, whenever we do consultation with high school kids, which we do all the time, mm. and we put year 12 and 13s in a room, mm. so we're not seeing them through a social media lens or a newspaper lens, I'm just talking to them, right? I am always amazed at how thoughtful and bright they yeah. are. And what I always come away from those projects thinking as the future's in safe hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's really easy. One of the things that psychologists talk about is as people get older, they tend to get more cynical. Yeah. 
And there's a good argument that what they what's really going on is they're interpreting their own decline as mm. they age, mm. and that you know they're slowing down and they're, they're not quite as sharp as they used to be. And seeing that as being a product of the world around them rather mm. than being something that's happening to them organically. But you know, and what that often does is it leads to people looking at the next generation and going, you know, we're doomed. We're doomed. You know. My experience is it's exactly the opposite. Complete opposite. We're in great hands. I wonder if that's because we reflect on young people with the lens that we have now. And I mean, even if you think about all the sayings, you know, the, the arrogance of naivety, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Absolutely. They're all very negatively based as opposed to, I cannot wait to see them lead me and, and well, be led by them. I, I know we need to wrap up, but yep. you know, one of the things that we rail against all the time is people's use of generational um, assumptions sure. in marketing. So that notion of generation X, generation Y, they're very, you know, they're, they're lazy and they're yep. not particularly accurate. Uh, and so one of the things people do is they look at the new generation and they make all those assumptions. A much more interesting perspective is to think of them as a life stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those, 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 those qualities that you're attributing to the new generation might actually just be qualities that 18 and 20 year olds have. And if you think about yourself when you were 18 and 20, you too might have been Probably. lazy and selfish. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And maybe this is something, I don't know if you've, you're already doing this, but I challenge the listeners to do. I recently signed up um, a millennial mentor, someone to mentor me, Great someone idea. who is 20, 20, 25 years younger than me. Yeah. And they really struggled with this idea. They said, no, 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 you're meant to be my mentor. It's like, nope, I need you to mentor me yeah. and, and flip the, the power dynamic and stuff. Uh, and, and when when we looked up, because they wanted to take a look at this themselves and see what the format is, all the narrative is flip, flipped mentorship or reverse mentorship as if it's already based on a power dynamic. Yes. I'm like, no, 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 you're in charge Absolutely. and stuff like that. And so just trying to explore that. I think it's quite an interesting I love that time. Idea. Yeah. But, but, you know, again, and if you think about even our, even our political structures, we often have lip service to a youth advisory group or yeah, yeah. a youth council has no decision rights. Yeah, that's you right. know, if we were actually truthful about this, let's give them some authority. But then when we do, when we have a young prime minister, everyone talks about how young she is, <laughs> not necessarily how qualified or how competent she is. It's always she's the youngest or whatever else might be. Cool. So, Carl, thank you so much for your time. This has been super insightful to the extent that we, we do generally catch up for coffees and beers regularly, and it's usually like this. This is why I thought you would be a great guest on there, but I kind of feel there needs to be a couple of follow-ups. <laughs> I really appreciate your time Thanks. and everything you I've really you enjoyed this. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Kaki Te Cheers.